Hey weirdo, if you keep bringing up forensic files during happy hour, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. It's just like a low, soothing... Why do I sound like Jeff Bridges, actually? I love Jeff Bridges well, so much. Just call me the dude. Oh, I fucking will. I love that movie. Like, if I could get away with walking down the street with what he, his wardrobe in that movie, like... Just wearing a bathrobe constantly and drinking white Russians? Yes, I seriously, I would. It pretty much is the life. There's really nothing much better than not getting dressed and being kind of drunk all the time. (laughs) I, I just have this, like, deep need to wear a bathrobe all the time. They're cozy. They are cozy, right? Yep. I feel like people need to wear robes more. We should bring the robe back. We should bring the dude look back. Well, I feel like people would be happier if they just wore a robe because they would just feel cozy. Yeah. And who is like not happy when they're cozy? We're already halfway there because we're wearing sweats. Oh, I am fully wearing pajamas today. (laughs) I've been wearing stretchy pants every episode except for (laughs) one. I'm one of those people who like, I believe in you dress nice and you feel nice. I mean, that's a super simple way to put it, but I always like to dress put together because I feel put together. Otherwise, I just, my my life would totally just fall to shit and just be a, a disaster. If I dress like the dude, my life would be like the dude. Like, Fucking I rad. <laughs> I couldn't dress like the dude and have a put together life. But I get it. I always thought you were supposed to dress for the job you want, and I thought you had to wear stretchy pants to podcast. I think so. Think that that's a rule? I think it is a rule. It's a rule now. It's our rule. Hi, guys. This, Hello. This is Happy Hour Gets Weird. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> oh, oh God, we We're so hour. awkward. Please stay. Please stay. Um, I'm Cassie. I'm Tiffany. And this is our podcast, Happy Hour Gets Weird. Weird. Um, we get together for happy hour and we have drinks and we talk about all the weird shit that weird people like to talk about. This week we are drinking spiked coffee. Ooh, it's pretty good. It is pretty, pretty, pretty good. It is pretty good. It has whipped cream on top. And as always, we will post our drink recipe and pictures on our Instagram. Happy hour gets weird pod is our Instagram. Um, and I like how you were so humble about the whipped cream. Tiffany made the whipped cream homemade, by the way, and it really is delicious. I could eat just a whole bowl of this whipped cream. It is very, very good. All right. Well, now that we've talked about our drinks and the dude, wanna, should we... You want to get into it? Get into it. All right. Um, so just a little, a little disclaimer. We are talking um, some pretty heavy subjects this week we're doing a true crime episode so it's going to be a little bit heavier than last week which was bigfoot pun intended um you know because he's tall our bigfoot episode was definitely lighter than this one yeah this one's going to be heavy so we decided tiffany and i decided to kind of at the top of the heavier episodes we're just gonna start calling them top shelf episodes right yep and that is our warning so if we say it's a top shelf episode that means triggers there's yeah gonna be all kinds of triggers so this week we um had planned on doing a family when family kills family and we both ended up on true crime cases where the parents um 
harm their children. So yeah, this, totally by accident. I didn't know that we were going to both end up picking parents, but yeah, we did. So this is just like a trigger warning. We are going to be discussing child abuse in graphic detail. Um, so just a little heads up. If you are going to be triggered by that, please stop listening. Um, if you're not going to be triggered like that and you want to hear about these true crime cases, please keep listening. Okay, well, now that we have our uh, top shelf warning. Yeah, let's go ahead. You're going to go first? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So before I start, I um, actually I have two things. We have new mics, so we hope that it sounds better. Oh, yeah. For one. We're really stepping it up in the world. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to say something that I have meant to say after an episode we've we did previously. Um, a lot of the episodes that we do touch on religion and it, oh, you mean how we roasted? Well, I in particular roasted Annalise's parents. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know how that came off. I just want to say that I hold no judgment against any religion or person who has religious beliefs. I hope that none of our episodes come off um, as like disparaging people of faith. I like I know that people that actually know me, I wouldn't have to say that to like they would right. know that I would that I would never judge somebody's, you know, religious beliefs. But it's kind of hard because we're in this weird situation where strangers could be listening to us. And I just want to make sure that people know that we're not judging religion or anything like that. No. Unfortunately, a lot of the episodes that we do, the people use religion as an excuse or a reason to do horrible things. Yeah. And that's going to come up in what I'm about to talk about. Yeah. So I felt like I should say something. Yeah, you do you, really. Yeah, as long as you're not hurting anybody, yeah, you do whatever don't you want. You if you're hurting somebody, yeah. But if you're just, you know, living yeah. life, being a good person, doing whatever you want to do, and yeah, no judgment here. We just happen to be talking about true crime cases that involve people who, yeah, exploited religion to take advantage of other people, and that, friends, is not okay in my book in any way. No. Okay, so now that we've done so many disclaimers and you guys are like, what the fuck can you talk about your stories? <laughs> um, let's get to it. All right, you go, go. One, two, okay. three, go. Okay. Um, my sources are CNN, Murderpedia, a Medium article by Delaney Bartlett, and a little bit of the um, a little bit of the Fresno Beat. Fifteen years ago, a crime shook the city of Fresno, California. Years of horror culminated in a tragedy that still haunts the city. Today, I am discussing the crimes of Marcus Wesson. Insert dramatic sound effect. That was good. That's exactly what I wanted. So Marcus Wesson was born on August 22nd, 1946. I didn't find that much about his life before adulthood. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, all that I pretty much found was... Which, which is, like, for me, one of the most interesting parts of true crime cases is, like, these people that do really yeah. fucked up shit. Like, I'm always interested to, is it, was it nature or nurture? Or both? And I think that that's kind of the thing that people are trying to, constantly trying to figure out. Like, how much of nature, how like, much of nurture. Because some people can handle so much stuff and some people are, like, 
can handle nothing. I mean, you can before only breaking. get so many frontal lobe head injuries before you start eating. That's people. true. I'm I, I this guy. I don't know if he had a head injury, but I'd like to give him one. Yeah. <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah. The one thing I, that everything did say was that he grew up in a religious household with a strict father. Um, uh, other than that, I don't really know much. Um, but I think by all accounts, he was a, an okay kid. He ended up joining the army and was stationed in Europe. And um, there was no news, you know, no bad stories about his time in the military. Okay. After his stint in the army, he moved to San Jose. Wait, in Europe? Yeah, he was stationed in Europe. I believe he was a medic. I think he was a medic. Maybe Transylvania. Um, after his stint in the army, he moved to San Jose. It was 1968. Okay. And in San Jose, he moved in with a woman named Rosemary Maturina. Rosemary, always. It's a full circle. Everything yeah. is a full circle. Everything's connected. And um, Rosemary had an eight-year-old daughter. During this time, Wesson claimed God was speaking to him. He oh, was brother. in his he was in his mid twenties. Oh, this is not going to be good. This is why I did my disclaimer. Um, he was in his mid twenties by this time, and he and Rosemary had a son together. Also, soon after living in this household, Weston began telling Rosemary's eight year old daughter Elizabeth that she belonged to him and that God wanted them to be married. Oh God! Yeah, I'm like already like fully enraged. At the, I'm like two sentences in. I'm like my. I can feel the veins in my neck, like, pulsating <laughs> blood. When Elizabeth was 15, she and Weston married, apparently with her mother's blessing. What the fuck, man? They were already having sex. I think she might have been pregnant when they got married. Oh, my God. What a, what terrible, terrible, terrible parents. Yeah. The mom was like, oh, God told you. Okay, cool. Chill. Uh, Weston ended up having 10 children with Elizabeth. <gasps> His stepdaughter? Yes, so they were, because he was never technically married to her mom, but yeah, the, oh, the stepdaughter. Goodness. Yeah. Okay. Um, that poor, sweet baby. Yeah. So she was, she had pretty much known Wesson like her entire life. Like she met him when she was eight. Okay. So this was pretty much all the mom knew too. Okay. Um, also, this is just so like irony in the worst way. Elizabeth's sister sent her seven children to live in the Wesson household because she couldn't properly care for them. I believe that they were getting molested at her household, so she sent them to live with Wesson and Elizabeth. Um, Wait, Rosemary's sister or Elizabeth's sister? Elizabeth's sister. And Elizabeth is the stepdaughter. Elizabeth, Rosemary's daughter. Yes, Elizabeth so is, Rosemary had another daughter? Yes, but Elizabeth Elizabeth is Marcus Wesson's wife in this whole story. Okay. Rosemary's out of it. Okay. So yeah, was so, she just like hanging out in the living room, or was she still staying there, or living there? No, I think know? they they like moved out, I believe, after they got married. So, so there was. I'm I'm so sorry. I don't. I just want to get this straight so I can understand. So Wesson met Rosemary. Yeah. Rosemary had an eight year old daughter. Wesson, Wesson married the eight year old daughter when she was fifteen. And kind of kicked Rosemary to yeah. the curb. Yeah. Yes. What the fuck, man? And Elizabeth had a sister who sent her seven children to also live with Elizabeth and Wesson. What the fuck? So they had 17 kids there at one point? Yes. Yes. Oh, God. Please give this monster more it's children It's like the worst Brady Bunch. Yeah. It's oh horrible. Oh, my God. Um, over the next 20 years, the Wesson family lived an existence of isolation, secrecy, and horror all at the hands of Wesson. So now I'm going to get into a little bit of just their life. Okay. Wesson never had a job, living instead off welfare until much later on when his children could be sent to um, work 
and then they would give their money to Wesson. The large family, and I'm going to use the word family, but this is not a family. The large family moved from place to place to avoid suspicions. They lived in a boat for a few years. Uh, Wesson would always keep the kids like under the under yeah, the under, deck, whatever. Uh -huh. um, which can you imagine? Seventeen kids living on a boat. Um, they lived in an army surplus tent in the Santa Cruz mountains without running water for like 12 years. They also lived in an abandoned school bus for a while, just situations like that. Often they would scavenge for food from restaurant dumpsters. Uh, the children weren't allowed to attend school and they relied on Wesson for all of their education. That is not a good scenario. No, it's, I can't. It's seriously so awful. Um, Wesson's cult teachings, as with most things built on bullshit, are like really hard to follow. Okay. Okay. So the, he's cuckoo crazy. Besides yeah. being like evil. Yes. And a piece of shit, he's also crazy. Perfect. What a great yeah. mixture. Yeah. Dreamboat. So his, he started teaching his family a perverse religion, again, using that word very loosely, based off of Christianity and vampirism. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yep, you heard it. You heard it right. So maybe he was stationed in Transylvania. Maybe he was, yeah. Um, his sons were given beatings over the slightest infractions. One son told a story that he took a spoonful of peanut butter and was beaten every day for a month. His daughters and nieces were molested from the age of eight. Uh, he told them it was called loving and would make them better women. Oh, my goodness. That is... Yeah, it's... This is to, one of the worst stories. Their, to, to twist love like that and, oh my gosh. And they're already living like in squalor. They're starving to death. They're totally isolated and they're being sexually abused their entire lives. And, and totally brainwashed. being told that that's how people love each other. Yeah. Wesson also separated the sons and the daughters so that they wouldn't have feelings for each other, according to Wesson's fuck, daughters. So he like really, I mean, what a nut. I don't even think that some of the sons were aware of the abuse that was going on because they were like completely, you know, they were split apart. Uh, Wesson married several of his nieces and daughters when they were young teens in these like fake bullshit ceremonies where they'd like put their hand on a Bible and then he'd give them a gold ring. And uh, he would read from the Bible like multiple times a day, interpreting passages, like, you know, twisting them so that it would pretty much support his disgusting agenda. Yeah. He taught them that God was losing followers and that it was their job to make more of God's children. Uh, in the so it like played he into manipulated it perfectly so that his molesting, molesting his daughters and was serving rape God and incest was like serving God. Yeah, yes, what they needed to do. And he said for God. he said things that like that incest would make like a more pure person. Pure. Okay, what yeah. a sicko. He would say things like, God's children are becoming extinct, and, you know, we have to make more oh, children for the Lord. Yeah. They never had a chance. It's, it's really sad. But then he also, so this is why, this is part of the thing that was really, I mean, the vampire thing's obviously confusing, but he also, like, claimed that he was God later on. So it's like, at first he would talk about God, but then he said he was God. So it was really, I don't know. It's like Maybe he was they just, started questioning things. Yeah. So then he's like, no, I'm God. But he also claimed that Jesus was a vampire. And that's why they both have eternal life. Also, like, vampires are super real, so that makes sense. Yeah, what a crazy... It's like he watched Interview with a Vampire one day and was like, wait a minute. 
I I know what to do. That's a bingo. Fucking. God, I hate this guy so much. And he gave himself a vampire. He gave everyone a vampire name. Okay. But his own vampire name was J. Vam Mark Sus Pyre, which is Jamarcus, or was Jesus, Marcus, and Vampire mixed together. What an idiot. I literally wrote, he is such a fucking idiot. Dude, like, seriously, you can come up with a better vampire name? No, he's a fucking idiot. Uh, he also believed that there was power in drinking blood, but I didn't find anything that said that he necessarily drank blood. I mean, obviously I wouldn't put it past him, but yeah. he just thought that that was another thing with vampires that he was kind of obsessed with. Aside from all of this weirdness, his uh, his children waited on him hand and foot. I mean, they oh, thought so that, he was lazy too. Yeah, perfect. he thought that he was God. So they were pretty much afraid to not do everything he said. And another thing that really pissed me off because like so many times the children were hungry and like in the later court trials they talked about like there were times where all they had was rice to eat and like being hungry and food was a big deal to you know yeah when you don't have food big food, food is a is big a deal huge deal yeah um wesson ate fast food whenever he wanted and was <gasps> over 300 pounds when he was arrested so these children that were constantly focused on food and starving he was fucking fine it's just like one more thing that really makes me hate him a couple of the daughters even with all of this brainwashing they did try to leave when things became too unbearable. Yeah. Um, one was found by Elizabeth, the mom, and brought back. One daughter who just spoke about leaving was stabbed in the chest by Wesson but survived. What? So she just, like, told him that she wanted to leave and he stabbed her. And one girl did get away. <gasps> Good for her. By this time, the children of the family had grown. The boys left home, but the girls oh, stayed. Oh, he let them leave? Yeah, but the girls stayed. The boy, the boys he were allowed to leave. He actually let people leave? Well, he let the boys leave, I think, because... He had no use for them? Yeah. And I'm sure that he probably couldn't beat them anymore once they were grown. Yeah. The girls stayed, and they were still heavily under the control of Wesson. The family moved to a building in Fresno, California. Wesson sent some of his wives to work to support them, and they always returned and gave their money to Wesson. They bought antique coffins. It was said that the children... Sorry, what? They bought antique coffins. It's a vampire thing. And vampire things, but they actually bought yeah, coffins. Yeah. It was said that the children, the children that Marcus and his daughters and nieces had together, yeah. the little children that yeah. were there at this point, slept in the coffins because the building that they lived in was unheated, and they needed to to stay warm. It wasn't a house; it was like an office building or so, some what sort a of a fucking house of horrors. Yeah, a building of horrors. Yes, the girls Wesson had married believed they were happy to be with Wesson. The control Wesson had over these people cannot be understated. Oh, they, like, were fully brainwashed. Yes, they were fully brainwashed. His family truly believed that he was God, that the outside world was evil, and that death would be better than breaking up the family. I can't, like, I can't even imagine how horrible this whole 20 years, decades of abuse and brainwashing and horror, and it's just awful. In 2004... Sofina Solario and Ruby Ortiz, who had previously left their children fathered by Wesson in his care, returned to get them. The women had heard that Marcus was moving the family to Washington State, and they wanted to get their children back before then. Wesson refused to release their children. The women's female relatives that had remained at the house, Wesson's other wives, called Sofina and Ruby whores and Judas and said they should bow to their master. They were like yelling at the cousins who had tried, you know, were trying to get their 
kids back. Yeah. Why the change of heart all of a sudden? Sophina and Ruby called the police to come help. It was, you know, this huge thing. They were yelling at each other. Neighbors were gathered around watching this this whole thing because yeah. there's obviously- It was a scene. It was a huge scene and there's yeah. so many people yeah. at this point, you know, oh, well, and kids. St- and They start out with 17 and then they started yeah. having kids, so there had to be, yeah. you know. So the police came to the residence followed by SWAT. They were aware that Wesson had a gun in the house full of women and children. As police were getting into position, shots rang out. Wesson walked out covered in blood and surrendered. <gasps> no. The police found nine dead inside, piled on top of each other, mixed with clothing. You know what? I know of this story, but I didn't, I don't, I've never, like, looked it up or read anything about it. So he's still alive. Yes. Oh, that bastard. So the police walked in, and there was this pile of dead children and women. (gasps) The room was lined with coffins. All of them were shot through one eye. It was seven children and two young women. There was Sabrina Wesson, who was 25, Elizabeth Wesson, who was 17, Isabel Wesson, who was eight, Ethan Wesson, who was four, Sedona Wesson, who was one and a half, Marshy Wesson, who was a year and a half also, oh my God. and Java Wesson, who was one. Oh my God. Yeah, it's really um heavy. It's really, this was, I, this story is going to stick with me forever. It's so awful. It is the worst mass shooting in Fresno's history. The scene was really traumatic for first responders. Yeah. It's just awful. I cannot even imagine. At the trial, Wesson claimed his oldest daughter that died had pulled the trigger before taking her own life. But even if she was the one that did it, All the way she to only the end. what a piece of shit. Yeah, even if she was the one that did it, she acted on Wesson's orders and years of mind control. Right. So fuck you, Marcus right. Wesson. Yeah. Some surviving family members also spoke at the trial. Some of them actually in favor of Wesson because the control was still that strong. What? His original wife. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Was offered immunity for testimony. What? Elizabeth Wesson claimed in trial that she was unaware of the abuse. But considering their cramped living conditions and the fact that Marcus was was preaching these beliefs, that seems impossible. Like, she obviously knew. But at the same time, she met Wesson when she was eight years old. So I consider her a victim as well. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea of not protecting your kids, but if that's literally all that you know your entire life. Yeah, but, you know, I just feel like I'm going to maybe take an opposite stance. I feel like a victim turned abuser. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I could see that. You know, at eight, you you have, you know, eight years of living in non-abuse, you know, apparently. We don't have anything saying otherwise that she was abused before that. Yeah. I mean, and I just feel like at that point, See, what makes me think that is she's lying about it. You know what I mean? Like, if she didn't think it was wrong, she would say, like, well, I just thought that was our way of life. She made a comment in the trial, something like, according to the papers, the way we lived was wrong. But for me, it would be like, well, I just thought that's how everybody's family was. Like, I didn't know any different. But instead, she's showing, like, deceit, which she knew it was, like, I didn't know anything about it. But how did you think the girls were getting pregnant then? People... Claim, they said that it was artificial insemination. When you're living in a tent? Yeah, seriously. Like, because that's free. Out of a bus? Because I, I, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't believe that she didn't know either. I just think that she was also abused and under control. The whole thing is just awful. There's, yeah, it is awful. It's, you know, it's a lose-lose. It is awful. The trial testimony was really, really bad. Jurors were, like, crying. Yeah, I bet. That would 
that that's a terrible case to be a jury. Yeah. The Weston children spoke of beatings, sexual abuse, and years of other cult behaviors. A story was told about Wesson beating the legs of a one-month-old baby because it was crying. Yeah, he was so, – oh, God, he's such a piece of shit. He was con- – Wesson was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder on June 17, 2005, and also found guilty on 14 counts of forcible sexual assault and the sexual molestation of seven of his daughters and nieces. Wesson was sentenced to death on June oh, 27, 2005, but we um, – Oh, that's right. In, in California, there is no longer – the death penalty. The death penalty. Well, at least he's never getting out. Since then, Wesson's attorneys have filed motions to dismiss the murder charges against Wesson because they claim that it was Sabrina who did it, not Wesson. But it's like, fuck you. You're staying in jail. Yeah. Like, I, if he were ever to be out of jail, that, that would be like such a horrible miscarriage of justice. Yeah. Oh my so I don't even know the point of trying to throw out the murder when you're in jail for 14 counts of, of rape and molestation. And sexual rape. So, you know. It has taken many years for the Wesson children to realize that Marcus Wesson is not God and that his teachings were evil and self-serving. They are truly survivors. I wanted to end this story on kind of a higher note because okay. it's so awful. So I found this article written by the Fresno Bee. Six months before the mass shooting, one daughter had escaped. Remember how I mentioned that? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. She lived with a brother in secrecy. Okay. Her first day of school began at age 19. Oh, my goodness. I know. This is amazing. After receiving the shocking news of what had happened to her family, Gypsy stayed focused on her goals. She worked, she went to school, and she raised a daughter that she had with her boyfriend, And in 2011, Gypsy Wesson, a survivor, graduated from Fresno Pacific University, where she received her bachelor's degree in business. Oh my goodness, Gypsy. Congratulations. Yeah. So she went through all that and then worked her way through college and got a degree when she had never been to school. She taught herself how to read at home, like with help from older siblings. Oh my goodness. That is such a, like a silver lining yeah. Inside of this terrible, terrible, awful, disgusting story. It is the worst story in the world. And I was so happy that I found that story about Gypsy because she deserves all the praise, even if it's just from our little podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so go Gypsy. Yeah. And yeah, that story's awful. So have a drink of something. Oh my gosh, you need it. I freaking need it. Oh I God. freaking need a drink after that. Oh my gosh, that's great. That's just such a terrible story. Those poor kids. Mm-hmm. Those poor kids and the women too. It's the worst story in the world. It it is. It's in, it's pretty bad. It's pretty much the worst of the worst. It's it's that's bad. Um, oh, you're, you're welcome. Thank you so much. I feel like um. Well, it's not going to get any better. Okay. Um. Are you ready for my story? Can we just talk about Bigfoot again? Actually, I love the Bigfoot. I could talk about Bigfoot all damn day. Okay, so uh, I'm doing the story of Sheila and Susan Knorr, who were killed by at the hands of their mother, Teresa Knorr, who is the absolute most evil person, um, you know, Wesson and Teresa, match made in hell. Pretty much. Oh my um, God, could you imagine if they knew each other? Oh God, the world would burn. So I got, I'm going to do something a little different. This, this, um, usually we um, do a bunch of research and then write our own essay. 
Um, but I'm actually, I found an essay on Murderpedia of all places, and it's called Mother Knows Best, the story of Teresa Jimmy Cross, which is her maiden name, by David Lohr. And I'm going to read his essay because I feel like it kind of sums everything up in a, in a good way. So this one is brought to you by David Lore. All right, let's, um, let's hear it. And I got a little bit of tidbits here and there also from Wikipedia. And this was actually a Evil Lives Here episode on the ID channel. It was such a good episode. Yeah. I love that show. Yeah, me too. One of my faves for a shout. I mean, could I be any more stupid? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's my cue to just start. So this is... Mother Knows Best, the story of Teresa Jimmy Cross by David Lore. On the morning of July 17, 1984, 45-year-old Mabel Harrison was driving on California's Highway 89 when she noticed a bright light illuminating the woods. Concerned that a fire had broken out, Mabel decided to investigate from her vantage point on the interstate. Mabel wasn't sure what she was looking at, but as she made her way down the rocky slope to get a closer look, a permeating stench stopped her. Alarmed, she ran back up the incline and flagged down a truck. Robert Eden stopped his truck when he saw Mabel waving her arms. When she told him there was an unusual fire burning at the bottom of the hill, Eden grabbed his fire extinguisher and the two headed toward the source. After Eden doused the flames and the smoke began to clear, he and Mabel discovered what appeared to be a charred human corpse. As soon as the reality of the situation hit him, Eden ran back to his truck and reported the grisly discovery to authorities on a CB radio. Emergency services personnel were already surrounding the area by the time Tahoe City Detective Russell Potts and Larry Adams arrived on the scene. After looking over the gruesome site, Potts requested that criminologist Michael Sags and Placer County Sheriff Donald J. Noons be brought in. Within an hour, the four men were taking soil samples and photographing the area. The body was badly burned and the lower portion of the victim's leg was detached and lying next to the body. The left arm was propped up on its elbow and the right arm was extended at the victim's side. The only part of the body not burned was the left side of the victim, victim's face. It was obvious that the victim was female. Her breasts, although severely charred, were remained, remained visible. In all, investigators collected more than 30 pieces of evidence, which they found on or around the body. Among the items cataloged, a green toothbrush, a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans, a yellow and black scarf, an underwire size 32C bra from JCPenney, and a black onyx bracelet, disposable diapers, a pair of hoop earrings, and several miscellaneous articles of clothing. After finishing up the crime scene, investigators dubbed the body Jane Doe, number 4873-84, and sent her to Placer County Morgue. Less than two hours later, forensic pathologist Dr. A. V. Kuna conducted the autopsy. The victim was between 18 and 22 years old, five feet, three inches tall, and weighing approximately 115 pounds. The body showed signs of abuse, and there were two puncture wounds discovered on the victim's back. 
The discovery of an ovarian tumor indicated that Jane Doe had suffered a severe beating at some point prior to her death. Her physical injuries were life-threatening, but the immediate cause of death was smoke inhalation, which means that she was burned alive. Oh, my God. Following the autopsy, Jane Doe's fingers were removed and sent to Sacramento for prints. Her maxilla? Mm -hmm. Maxilla? Mm -hmm. Maxilla? Magdala? I don't know. know. And mandible were removed. That's her jaw. Okay. They, the upper and lower jaw, were removed in case dental records surfaced. Investigators had few clues to go on and very little hope of discovering the identity of Jane Doe, number 4873-84. And in effect, it would almost be a decade before they found out who she was. That's so awful. It's terrible. Do the numbers correspond with the number of Jane Does they have? I don't know, but it did. The last two numbers were the year okay. that she was found. So does that, I, I was just wondering if the, any part of it was like, that's how many Jane Does. We'll have to look that up later. Yeah, I don't know. That is something to look up. Um, I hope it's not. So, yeah, that would, that would be horrific. Yeah. So David wrote this essay based on um, two books, Mother's Day by Dennis McDougall, um, and there's another one later in the essay that he names also. According to the 1995 book Mother's Day by Dennis McDougall, Teresa Jimmy Francine Cross was born on March 12, 1946. Her father, Jim Cross, was an assistant cheesemaker at Sacramento's Golden State Dairy, which by the way, is a fucking kick-ass job, I think. I would love to be a cheesemaker. Do you get to eat it? Well, I would. I, I would be a cheese sampler. <laughs> <laughs> um, and her mother, Swanee Gay Cross, uh, worked at a local lumber a company. Name. Swanee? That's a tough one, yeah. It's S-W-A-N-N-I-E. Swanee? Mm-hmm. Swanee. No matter what. Swanee. No matter how you slice it. That's a tough name. It's like a pirate's name. Yeah. Um, Teresa had an older sister, Rosemary. Are you joking? I. It must be popular name in the in, in the, the seven in the fifties, sixties, seventies, forties, forties. Yeah. Nineteen fifty-two. Forty-four. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Rosemary, born in forty-four, and two older step step siblings, William and Clara Tapp. The stepchildren were from Swaney's first marriage, which unexpectedly ended with the death of her husband in 1939. The Cross family prospered over the years, and by the early 50s, they were able to move out of their small Sacramento bungalow and purchase a large house in Rio Linda, California, which is just north of Sacramento. Um, nonetheless, their happiness was short-lived. And and, I'm sorry, but both what? of our stories are both Northern California as well. Yeah. And parents. Yeah. Well... We were on the we're vibing. We are. Yeah, we're on the don't, same vibe. Don't visit here if you're not from here, I guess, is the moral of this these stories. Yeah. It's in the water. Watch out. Ugh, it's in the cheese. <laughs> their, nonetheless, their happiness was short-lived, and sometime during the late 50s, Jim Cross fell ill with Parkinson's disease. Oh. He could no longer work and was forced to quit his cheese-making job. That's awful. I know. It is really sad. Stuff. Following his diagnosis, Jim fell into a deep depression and often took his anger out on his children. Oh, no. According to friends 
of the family, Teresa was a loner and had always been jealous of her sister, Rosemary. If they weren't fighting over a neighborhood boy, they were competing for their mother's attention. Teresa was especially fond of her mother and outsiders felt that Sweeney favored Teresa over Rosemary. In retrospect, the afternoon of March 2nd, 1961, probably affected Teresa more than anyone could have imagined. So Teresa was 15. Mm-hmm. In 1961, mm-hmm. Teresa was ex- escorting her mother to a local store that day when her mother suddenly collapsed. As Teresa held the woman in her arms, Swaney breathed her last breath and died. Her cause of death was congestive heart failure, and on March 6, 1961, Swaney Cross was buried at Sunset Lawn Cemetery. So when she was 15, her mother died in her arms. Yes. So, I mean, it's like making... You know, little pieces of the puzzle, I think, are kind of starting to fit together. Not excusing her terrible, awful, evil behavior. Yeah, no, I know this story, so I already hate her. But (laughs) to me, if you lost your mother at a young age, that would make me, (laughs) that would make me want to be a better mom. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, you know, you want to be the thing that you wanted to have when you were growing up kind of situation. Like, be the person that you looked for when you were a kid. I completely, 100% agree with you. So, fuck her. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) I don't know. No, seriously. Following the death of her mother, Teresa fell into a deep depression from which she never fully seemed to recover. Without Swainy's income, Jim Cross could no longer afford to keep the family home and was forced to sell it. Bit by bit, every piece of security Teresa had known was taken away from her. With her life in disarray, Teresa lashed onto the first man that walked into her life. I can believe that. Clifford Clyde Sanders was five years older than Teresa when the two first met at a mutual friend's house. Within weeks, the young couple was in love and discussing marriage. Whether Teresa actually loved Clifford or simply wanted security in her life is anyone's guess. Regardless, on September 29, 1962, Teresa Jimmy Cross became Teresa Jimmy Sanders. Shortly after the wedding, Teresa dropped out of junior high school, and the couple moved into a one-bedroom apartment in North Highlands District of California. It did not take long for the marriage to start going downhill. Teresa was very possessive of Clifford and kept him on a short leash. The middle schooler was the bossy one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. On July 16, 1963, Teresa gave birth to her first child, Howard Clyde Sanders. Things seemed to settle down for a while, but eventually Teresa reverted back to her old ways. Howard was unhappy in the marriage and it had not and had it not been for Teresa's second pregnancy in the spring of 1964, he probably would have left her. Their one-bedroom apartment was too small for another child, and the growing family moved into a small white house just outside of Sacramento. While Teresa and Clifford's marriage had its ups and downs, tempers came to a boiling point on June 22, 1964. Rather than spend the day with her and the baby, Clifford went out drinking with his friends. Bye, bitch. You're not 21 yet. I'm <laughs> like, do I blame him? No. <laughs> well, and she's she's not even probably old enough to go, right? Baby, possessive wife that's on your last fucking nerve. Or she's 14 and teenagers are super <laughs> crazy anyways. Yeah. Um, How old, but she was she an adult by this time though, really? Do you know? 
by her second kid? Was she like... Yeah, she was 18. She was 18. Okay. So like, yeah, he is also like not the best decision to make. You know, like whatever happened to family time, you know? Um, And the baby sleeps at night, so why not go out at night? I don't know. I'm like, anyways. Um, Later that evening, he strolled in drunk and Teresa boiled over. She berated him for neglecting his family and wasting their much-needed money on booze, which, by the way, is not okay. Yeah. Clifford was in no mood to argue, and he ended her tirade with a single punch to the face. Oh, shit. Teresa went to the police station and filed an assault and battery charge against him, but when it came time to arrest him, she refused to sign the papers and the charges were dropped. According to the 1995 book, Whatever Mother Says, by Wensley Clarkson, that's the other book that he used as a reference, oh, source. Clifford had a huge argument with Teresa on his birthday, July 5th, 1964. Teresa accused him of infidelity and he had decided he had had enough. The following day, Clifford packed his bags and told Teresa that he was leaving. Unfortunately, he never made it out the door. Oh, shit. Teresa went into a rage, grabbed a rifle, and shot her husband in the back. Clifford stumbled, or shot her husband. Clifford stumbled backwards and fell dead. Galt, so they lived in Galt at this time. Okay. Galt Police Chief Walter Frolich was the one, was one of the first officers on the scene. Quote, I grabbed a gun to make him keep from hitting me and it went off. End quote, Teresa said. Clifford's body was lying face down in the doorway of the kitchen and on the opposite end of the room, Frolich found the rifle leaning against the wall. Frolich arrested Teresa and transported her to the Sacramento County Jail. Baby Howard was taken to stay in the care of one of Teresa's relatives. The headline on July 7, 1964 in the Sacramento Bee Daily Newspaper announced, Murder charge is due in Galt death. The first paragraph read, Deputy District Attorney Donald Dorfman said he planned to file a murder charge today against 18-year-old Mrs. Teresa Sanders of Galt in the deer rifle slaying of her husband. Clifford Sanders, 23, was slain yesterday morning in the couple's small Galt home. They had to say small. (laughs) Like, the house was also kind of a fucking mess, so if she could have cleaned it up before she shot her husband, that would have been great. Yeah. Investigators reported the bullet apparently grazed off his left wrist and lodged in his heart. So she shot him facing him from across the room. Mm Mm-hmm. On August 4th, 1964, Teresa entered a plea of innocent by reason of self-defense in a Sacramento courtroom. Her trial was scheduled to begin three weeks later in Judge Charles W. Johnson's courtroom. Deputy District Attorney Donald Dorfman wanted a first-degree murder conviction, and on August 30th, 1964, he began his opening statements to the jury. Dorfman accused Teresa of murdering her husband in cold blood and insisted she concocted the allegations of self-defense in order to spare herself a prison sentence. The murder, in Dorfman's opinion, was committed because of Teresa's suspicions that her husband was committing adultery. Afterwards, Teresa's attorney, Robert Zarek, argued that Teresa acted out of self-defense and was only protecting herself and her unborn child. So she's pregnant at this time. Yeah. So a super sympathetic Right, and you have to think, too, again, not excusing her future behavior or her or killing her husband. I personally don't think it was in self-defense. I think that she killed him. I don't do that because she was pissed. In cold blood, yeah, in a rage. But she's has a almost one-year-old. 
She's 18 years old, and she has a baby on the way, and she's on trial for the murder of her husband. And we already know, well, we already speculate that she's emotionally disturbed still from the death of her mother. Yeah. So. I'm not surprised this happened. Yeah. But her actions are definitely inexcusable. No, totally. And the jury probably felt so sympathetic towards her because of her age and her situation. Yeah. Closing arguments began September 21st, 64. Dorfman repeated his opening statements and accused Teresa of murdering her husband out of jealousy. Quote, this is clearly premeditated first-degree murder, he told the jury. Quote, not every murderer can look like the witch in Snow White. She is 18 and pregnant, but that doesn't overcome the fact that she maliciously shot and killed her husband without provocation. On September 22nd, after deliberating for one hour and 45 minutes, the jury found Teresa, Jimmy, Francine Sanders not guilty. Dorfman was dumbstruck by the verdict. Whether he realized it at the time or not, the loss would eventually come back to haunt him. Um, yeah. So, her Uh, husband was found to have no alcohol in his system during the autopsy. So her story was a lie. Yeah, he wasn't... In a drunken rage. No, he was not. It was the morning after his birthday. He had gotten up and was like, fuck this shit. I'm out of here. And she's like, if I can't have you, nobody will. She's a fucking witch. Yeah. There, she gets way more it's evil. It's pretty sad that killing her husband is the least horrible thing that she's done in this story. Yes. Usually that's the end of the story, but this is the beginning. This is the beginning. Of her story. Buckle up. Buckle up, people. Oh, God. All right. This is where it goes. gets downhill from here. <laughs> it goes downhill from here. Wait, um, it gets worse. It, yeah. <laughs> After earning her acquittal, Teresa regained custody of her son, Howard, and moved in with family friends. She was four months pregnant. Her marriage to Clifford had not been happy, but at least it provided her with a sense of stability and belonging. Now, at just 18, she was alone and again desperately seeking stability. To cope, Teresa turned to alcohol and began drowning her sorrows at a local American Legion Hall. It was there that she met Estelle Lee Thornsbury, an Army veteran who had suffered a debilitating blow two years earlier when a swimming accident left him quadriplegic. Oh my goodness. Nonetheless, Thornsbury's disability didn't seem to bother Teresa, and the two began dating. Now, Estelle actually seems like a really nice guy. Yeah, he's been through a lot already. Yeah. On March 13, 1965, Teresa gave birth to Sheila Gay Sanders, even though the child was not his, Thornsbury doted on her and treated her as if his own. Deeply Aww. in love with Teresa, he suggested they all move in together and live as a family. Teresa agreed, and a few weeks later, they rented out a small apartment. In the beginning, Thornsbury enjoyed the living arrangements, but his feelings began to change when Teresa started treating him as a babysitter rather than a love interest. With the relationship already rocky, things came to an end a few months later when Thornsbury discovered Teresa was cheating on him with his best fucking friend. Jesus. Yeah. Like stone cold bitch. Oh God, she's such a fucking bitch. Oh wait, the worst part in this? Okay, listen to this. Following a heated argument, Teresa packed her belongings along with most of Thornsbury's belongings and moved the the fuck? fuck out. And he's a quadriplegic, so he's like, um... Excuse me, my things? Yes. Yeah. She fucked his best friend. Basically, he raised her daughter as his own. She took 
her kids away, took her things, and took his things. She's such a fucking bitch. Dude. Shortly after the breakup with Estelle, Teresa set her sights on Robert Knorr, a private in the Marine Corps. The two began dating, and within a few months, Teresa was pregnant, and they began discussing marriage. In February 1966, Knorr was shipped off to Vietnam. Shortly after his arrival, Knorr was on patrol when a stray bullet struck him in the shoulder. The injury was not serious, but frightening. Just the same. After a brief stay in a field hospital, he was back on his feet and patrolling the jungle again. But just weeks later, Nor was again shot. This time, the bullet hit him in the side, but barely penetrated the skin, earning him another brief stay in the hospital. His luck was running out, though. A few months later, while walking across a bridge in the middle of nowhere... What? It, I don't know. It suddenly blew up. Shrapnel? What? Yeah, I, I don't know. It, <laughs> I don't he know. He got shot twice and then he blew up? Yes. And he was married to Teresa. This is the unluckiest man ever. Yeah, and marrying Teresa was the worst was mistake. The, was actually the, the worst part. Yeah. I'm sure he was like, shrapnel, shrapnel. Have you met my wife? Yes. Fucking <laughs> married to the devil. Thank you very much. <laughs> shrapnel from the explosion ripped through his arms and legs, and oh the explosion threw him back to the ground. Luckily, nor for nor, no. there would be no more close calls. Wait, he survived that? Yes. They had to make, they had like three more kids together. He had to survive. Oh yeah, what the, and then after all this, he still has to go back to Teresa. Yeah, yeah, he's like, please don't send me back, please. He's like, like I, this I, bomb that I put on this bridge did nothing. He's, he's like, I can't still do it. I can still do it. His latest injuries earned him a trip stateside and he spent several months recovering at Oakland Naval Hospital. By June 1966, Teresa was seven months pregnant and eager to settle down with Nor. On July 9th, 1966, the young couple drove to Nevada and exchanged vows in front of a local judge. It was Robert's first marriage and Teresa's second. Both were eager to settle into their new roles and rented a small apartment in Sacramento. Two, maybe she just liked wide open spaces and she just frustrated with every space she had was tiny because everybody has always said that their houses were small. In all the articles, they lived in a small house. They lived in a small apartment. Like maybe she just Maybe saying small house is a nice way of saying that they didn't have a lot of money. Yeah, I, get, I suppose. Two months later, on September 27, 1966, Teresa gave birth to their third child, a girl. Teresa named the child Susan Marlene Knorr. Mm-hmm. Less than three months later, Teresa was pregnant again. Three months after having yes. Susan? Yes. Oh, shit. And on September 15, 1967, she bore Robert his first son, William Robert Knorr. A second son... Remember that name. It will be on the test. (laughs) A second son, Teresa's fifth child, was born on December 31st, 1968. Keeping her older half-brother in mind, Teresa named the boy Robert Wallace Knorr. So she's at five at this point. So we have Howard, Sheila, Susan, William, and Robert. Robert continued to serve in the military, so he was still... Yeah, he seems like a great guy. Yeah, he actually, I think he was. I think he was. Um, from, I'm sure he probably had awards from so many times of being shot and blown up, too. Robert continued to serve in the military, but his diminished abilities left him few options, and he was forced to work as a burial escort. The job wasn't without its perks, but it often, I don't know. What, what the fuck I are the perks? I don't know. It just says that. I don't know. I love seeing all the antique coffins. <laughs> 
But it often required. Oh, oh, okay. Here, it often required Robert to leave his family on a moment's notice. Oh, that's a perk. That's the perk. That's the perk. That was the perk. Yeah. Okay. That's and that travel halfway sense. around the country. The fucking perk. Teresa disliked Robert's new job and regularly voiced her opposition. Just as she did with Clifford, she began accusing him of infidelity. Tempers often flared, and Teresa took her anger out on the children. According to Dennis McDougall, McDougall, author of Mother's Day book, the book Mother's Day, Teresa would often punish them by forcing them to sit on the floor without moving. If they budged an inch or moved an eye, she would become angry and slap them. Whenever that didn't work, she would lock them in a closet or force feed them until they were ready to collapse. So she was a very specific type of abuser. She would force feed her kids, but also starve her kids as punishment. So she force feed them sometimes, and then she would starve them sometimes. And in the episode of Evil Lives Here, they said that she they would just be in their room, and she would come in and be like, why are you talking about me? You're laughing at me behind my back. And that would send her off on a spiral, and then she would start... She would make them all the kids come down and sit in the middle of the living room floor still for all night long. Or she'd wake them up in the middle of the night and tell them like, to come down. Like, was she on meth? Legitimately, was she on meth? I don't. I think she had mental illness, undiagnosed and untreated mental illness. You don't think she was on any hard drugs? I uh, know she was an alcohol. alcoholic. But she, and she was a severe I, I alcoholic. I remember hearing that too. The stories where she, she would like keep them up all night and just like bizarre weird shit. By June 1969, Robert could no longer take Teresa's allegations and sudden outburst. Leaving his children behind, he packed up what few belongings he had and moved out. Teresa retaliated by filing for a divorce on grounds of extreme cruelty. But a few weeks later, they reconciled and she dismissed her charges. Regardless, as much as Robert wanted to make the marriage work, it was far too late. One year later, Teresa again filed for divorce. In an ironic twist, Judge Charles W. Johnson, the same guy, the same fucking judge, no fucking that way. presided over Teresa's murder trial, granted the couple a divorce on June 3rd, 1970. No Two months later, way. Teresa gave birth to her sixth and final child, a girl she named after herself, Teresa Marie Knorr. Following the divorce, Robert tried to visit his children, but Teresa did not want anything to do with him and repeatedly denied him the right to see them. Robert eventually gave up and remarried, which oh, no. is sad. It is sad. It's, it's really sad. Those kids really needed him. Teresa didn't stay single for long. She was looking to mingle. Uh, soon, she soon began dating a railway, railway worker named Robert Pullum. In 1971, they married and shortly after purchased a house in East Sacramento. To outsiders, they seemed like a perfect family, but before long, history began to repeat itself and Teresa began treating Ronald as a possession rather than a partner. Just as she did with Estelle Thornsbury, Teresa began leaving her children at home with Ronald while she went out and partied. Eventually, she stopped coming home altogether. Ronald was convinced that she was seeing another man and filed for divorce. On September 27th, 1972, with Judge Charles W. Johnson again presiding, the divorce was granted. Like, what the fuck? There's only one judge in this town? Is there only one judge in Sacramento? It's pretty bad when you could, like, play a drinking game just saying his name in this episode. How does he keep... Crazy. Is he literally the only judge in the 70s in Sacramento? I, I guess. 
With her newfound freedom, Teresa spent the majority of her time drinking at the American Legion Hall in Rio Linda. It was there that she met 59-year-old Chet Harris, a copy desk editor at the Sacramento Union newspaper. The two seemed to hit it off well and were married August oh 23rd, 1976, just three days after their first meeting. Three days? She must have like this- A magic vagina? It's made out of gold and it's gold and methamphetamines. It's, yes, it's crazy. It's, it's three days. Yes. And why does she always go to the Legion? Is that the place to go to I pick up on dudes? We need to hit up the American Legion. <laughs> it was immediately obvious to Teresa that she had made yet another bad mistake. Shortly after moving in with her new husband, she discovered oh that one God. of his favorite hobbies was taking photographs of nude women. Totally consensual, by the way. Consensual nude photographs. Okay, so that's not really that bad. In fact, his bedroom walls were covered with them. Okay, that's a little much. <laughs> he wanted Teresa. It was to like his for... wallpaper was yes. just covered. So when she went Consensual to his house, nudes. Okay, but if you were the girlfriend, would you really want to like walk into your boyfriend's room or husband's room, whatever, and it's covered in naked women? I, wallpaper status. I would be like, oh, <laughs> I've made a mistake. <laughs> I'd be like, well, I like the bush on that one, but yeah, I should have actually looked at your wallpaper before we got married. There's a lot of pussy hairs on this oh. wallpaper. <laughs> It was the 70s. <laughs> oh my um, god, it was. Yeah, wallpaper, consensualnudestarget.com. <laughs> um, he wanted Teresa to pose for him, but she refused. While Teresa may have hated her new husband, <laughs> her daughter Susan grew close to him. And by all um, accounts, it not in a weird way. Okay, good. In like a father-daughter kind of way. Yeah. I mean, it could have been weird, but nothing, nothing said I read that. said that it was weird, yeah. It sounds like he, I mean, sounds like he's popular. Yeah. Her daughter, <laughs> Susan, grew close to him, and the two would often spend hours together working on jigsaw puzzles Aww. and discussing mythology. She was a weirdo. The relationship girl. between her daughter and Harris angered Teresa. While she wasn't particularly close to any of her children, she didn't feel that anyone else should step in and try to assume her role. On November 22nd, 1976, Two months after the marriage began, Teresa filed for a divorce with Judge Charles Johnson once again presiding. So the same fucking judge did her like take fifth a shot. Divorce. Yeah, please take a shot. Don't drink it. Um, or you're gonna see Judge Charles Johnson because he's the only judge left yes. in the world. The paperwork became final on December seventeenth, nineteen seventy six. Like this guy was probably it on was first name one basis. of Johnson's last court appearances, and he retired two months later. This divorce. If, if Teresa was on a cliff verging between sanity and insanity, this last divorce sent her over the edge. She really ramped up after this. Like is this she, her fifth divorce? Fifth divorce. She was married six times, and this was her fifth divorce. Following her latest divorce, Teresa's children noticed a remarkable change in her behavior. She started to drink. And, and this was about the time where, yeah, she was abuse and i say yeah she was abusive like oh she wasn't that bad no she was bad she was but bad. this is when it really became detrimental to their lives because she didn't have anybody reining her in at this point and she sunk an into a very very deep dark place in her life and alcoholism she's it is scary she started to drink even more and began putting on a great deal of weight her attitude became worse with each day and the abuse towards their children severely increased. 
Quote, when we were kids, my mom beat the shit out of us a lot, her daughter Terry told Dennis McDougal, McDougal years later. And he's the one who wrote the book, um, one of the books. Um, if we, quote, if we hugged our mom too much, it was like, who were we trying to convince that we loved her or she loved us? On the other hand, if we didn't hug and kiss and tell her we loved her, then we didn't love her and we were evil children. We were demon seeds that had been given to her by Bob Knorr. End quote. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> These poor children. Yeah. Terry's older brothers, devil. William and Robert, agreed. Quote, sometime around when I turned 10, she started becoming abusive. Real short-tempered, William said. Quote, she stopped going out, seeing friends at all, on any level. She got rid of the telephone because she didn't want anyone calling. We weren't allowed to have anybody inside the house. She didn't have a fucking phone? No, she got rid of it. Quote, when I was growing up, I hated the Brady Bunch because I knew that nobody lived like that, said Robert. Quote, I knew that because I knew what my family life was like. Nothing could be more different from the truth than that bullshit TV show. I grew up in an insane asylum, basically. But what's worse is we didn't know it was an insane asylum, end quote. Like, can you imagine just the trauma that these psychological, physical trauma that these kids live through? Like, it's no devastating. No, it's awful, and it's, yeah. The more Teresa drank, the crueler she became. On one occasion, she even threw steak knives at her children. Okay, so on Wikipedia, or maybe on Murderpedia, another um, part of Murderpedia, she would come home, and if she didn't throw knives at her children, she would fucking lick them in the kitchen in front of her kids. I don't know what is more terrifying than walking into the kitchen and seeing your crazy-ass mom licking steak knives. And you know she was all, like, fucking hammered with her hair all crazy and her eyeliner running, and she's in there licking steak knives. Right, yeah, like she's all fucking, sloppy and just, like, weirdo. oh, God, yeah, terrifying. She's gross this episode is like more scary than our halloween episodes yeah i guess we should have done this one for halloween because this we, is the this is the worst of the worst we really should have we really amped it up from from bigfoot <laughs> yeah um during another one of her binges she grabbed terry by the arm and held a 22 caliber pistol 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 to the girl's head. Oh my god. Four months afterward, her daughter suffered ter for months afterward, her daughter suffered terrifying nightmares. Oh my god. As if the mental torture wasn't enough, Teresa started beating the children on a regular basis, forcing them to take turns holding each other down while she administered the blows from above. That is so fucked up to and it's like fucked up she's doing it and then to pin them against each other like that. And what she would say is if you don't hold them down, you're getting the beating. Yeah. So they were forced to. Definitely. Teresa eventually got the idea in her head that Chester Harris had turned her daughter Susan into a witch. It's not known where the idea first came from. I'm thinking because they talked about mythology, maybe she got it twisted. But Susan began taking advantage of it and would use it against her mother. She would regularly say that Harris was going to initiate her into his cult by deflowering her in the name of Satan. So Susan would like egg her on. 
And well, it was probably the only way their mom would leave her the fuck alone for five minutes. It was her only self-defense. Yeah. It was her only self-defense. And Susan was point. probably like, you're a fucking idiot. Obviously, I'm not a witch. We were doing puzzles, you dumbass. Yeah. Fucking puzzles. So Susan, I think, thought that it would scare her away and kind of like spare her from any kind of abuse. But it really just... Oh, it ramped her up. It ramped Teresa up. The stories didn't seem to spare Susan any abuse, and she began suffering the worst of Teresa's blows. Eventually, Susan ran away from home. Her freedom was short-lived, and she was eventually picked up by a truancy officer and placed in Sutter Memorial Psychiatric Ward. During her stay at the hospital, Susan told counselors about her family life and regular beatings. When confronted with her daughter's allegations, Teresa claimed that her daughter was lying and suffered from mental problems. No one questioned her. And Susan was turned over to her mom. Jesus No one Christ. questioned. No one questioned her. Once back home, Susan received one of the most severe beatings of her life. Teresa donned a pair of leather gloves and struck her daughter repeatedly. Afterward, she forced the other children to join in. We had to pass the quote, we had to pass the gloves around one to the other and hit Susan in the stomach for what she did to the family by running away and everything. Robert recalled to Dennis McDougall years later, I had to hit her twice because I didn't hit her hard enough the first time. And at this point, um, Teresa didn't want her daughter running away again. So there's two different versions in this article, in this essay, it um, it says that she would handcuff Susan to the bed and force the other children to take turns keep keeping watch over her. And then in Evil Lives Here, it said that she handcuffed her to a table, like at the yeah, bottom the of the table. the base of a kitchen table. At the base of a kitchen table. So it doesn't really matter what she was handcuffed to. She was handcuffed and forced to stay in the house night and day. Um, and it might have been both. It could, yeah. It she probably could have moved was her from one to the other. It probably was. School was out of the question, and Teresa did not permit her daughter to attend. Eventually, Teresa's torment broke Susan's will, and she was allowed to sleep alone and unshackled. Eventually, the fear of another serious beating kept her in line. In 1982, Teresa got a wild notion that Susan was putting spells on her, forcing her to gain weight. Susan denied the allegations, but her protests fell upon deaf ears and Teresa flew into a violent rage. Before any of the other children knew what was happening, they heard a single shot ring out. Susan began gasping and fell to the floor. Blood poured out of her chest and she was writhing in pain. Teresa had shot her own daughter with a 22 caliber pistol she had once used to threaten Terry. After a brief pause, Teresa ordered the children to carry their injured sister to the bathroom and place her in the tub. Teresa did not want the police involved, so an ambulance was out of the question. The bullet had not passed through Susan's body, but it was too deep to remove from the open wound. Teresa decided to leave it in, patched her daughter up with gauze and bandages. While she's in the bathtub. Yes, and for the next month, Susan's sisters looked after her in the bathtub. Terry and Sheila took turns feeding and bathing her, and eventually, Susan fucking recovered. She recovered. And she was able to rejoin the family from out of the bathtub. That's so fucked. In November of 1983, Teresa and her children moved into an apartment in North Sacramento. Things were back to normal. 
quote normal whatever They're the normal. fuck whatever the fuck that is normal yeah for them i for the for teresa i don't i don't i don't know but then in july 1984 teresa got in a heated argument with susan and stabbed her daughter in the back with a pair of scissors oh my yeah god that's not even a sharp easy thing to stab into somebody sorry it's it's, it's crazy oh, okay the injuries were not life-threatening but serious nonetheless <sighs> susan was getting tired of the daily abuse and a few weeks later, she asked for permission to move out. So during this time, and I got this from Wikipedia, Teresa had forced Susan into prostitution to support the family. So Susan was going out. Um, she was a sex worker. Mm-hmm. And she was making money and then bringing that money back to the family to support the family because... I think Teresa was living on some kind of disability um, and it just wasn't enough to support the family. So she had made Susan after she was, she recovered from the gunshot. She was um, forced into sex work by Teresa. So she asked permission to move out. Surprisingly, Teresa agreed, but there was one stipulation. Teresa wanted to remove the bullet that remained lodged in her daughter's back. Susan reluctantly agreed and a few days later, the surgery began. God, this was awful. Teresa started the operation by giving her daughter a handful of Melaril capsules and a quart of hard liquor. The concoction Jesus. worked, and before long, Susan was completely unconscious. Teresa then received, re- retrieved an exacto knife from the medicine cabinet and ordered 15-year-old Robert to cut into his sister's back and retrieve the bullet. Teresa barked orders from overhead as he made the incision. Before long, he had cut through several layers of skin and muscle tissue. And then using his fingers, Robert searched around inside the wound until he finally located and removed the bullet. I think by this time, William, the older brother, and Howard, the older brother, they had already moved moved out. Yes. The next day, Susan woke up in horrible pain. No kidding. Obviously. Teresa gave her antibiotics and ibuprofen, but the medicines didn't seem to have an effect, and she kept getting worse. After a few days, her eyes turned yellow, and she could no longer control her bowels. At one point, Terry noticed black marks on Susan's back, which she later concluded were from internal bleeding as a result of Teresa's last beating. On July 16, 1984, Teresa duct-taped Susan's mouth shut, bound her arms and legs. Afterwards, she packed up all the girls' belongings into trash bags and ordered Bill and Robert to put Susan in the car. They drove south on Highway 89. So she called William, mm-hmm. who who is Bill in this um, essay. She called William over because he wasn't living at the house. And she, she made him come back and, and help. And she made him come back and help. Take Susan's body. Take Susan's body. They drove south on Highway 89 and eventually pulled off the road by Square Creek Bridge. Bill and Robert were then ordered to take Susan out of the car and carry her down to the creek bed. Teresa brought down garbage bags and then doused everything, including Susan, in gasoline and struck a match. Now, in this, according to the books, it was Susan that did it, but according to Evil Lives Here, it was one of the boys that did it so i don't know who actually doused her in gasoline and lit her on fire there's two different also two different accounts of that 
Um, Either way, it was in the orders of the mother, so let's just say it was her. Yeah. Yes. That's a good point. Everyone made their way back to the car, and no one looked back. Things around the Knorr house remained quiet and sullen during the weeks following Susan's death. But eventually, everything went back to normal. So I'm thinking their normal for their family was regular beatings. And, and constant like rage and screaming. And yes. So during late spring 1985, Teresa decided to supplement her small state-assisted income by having Sheila work as a sex worker. So she made Susan work as a sex worker and then when Sheila was 20, Susan had been murdered in 84. So it had been a year almost. So she sent Sheila to work as a sex worker. Um, Sheila was horrified at her mother's plan, but she was also not going to disobey because she saw what happened to Susan when she disobeyed. Before long, Sheila was bringing home hundreds of dollars a day. And Teresa seemed almost proud of her daughter. She eased up on the daily beatings and Sheila was allowed to go, come and go as she pleased. In a twisted sense, becoming a sex worker or being forced into sex work, like set her free. Essentially, a sex slave was yeah. more freeing than living than, in her home. Than being her, Teresa's daughter. Yeah. In May 1985, Sheila's freedom was brought to a sudden end. Teresa suspected that her daughter was pregnant and also accused of having a venereal disease, which Teresa claimed she got from her daughter by using the same toilet. And I, I don't even think she had a venereal disease. And I you just also think, can't get them from a toilet seat. I also think she just was had a yeast infection, probably. Probably. Sheila was beaten black and blue before being hogtied and locked in a tiny closet next to the bathroom. It was excruciatingly hot within the closet, but Teresa left strict orders to the other children. The door was to be kept closed at all times, and they were not permitted to give her any food or water. Now, Terry said that she snuck Sheila a beer at one point, and um, Sheila would beg, beg to come out of the closet. She, quote, she wanted Sheila to confess, Terry said years later. Quote, that was mother's way. Beat them until they confess. Sheila did eventually confess, but Teresa accused her of lying and the punishment continued. The third day of Sheila's incarceration, the family heard a loud thump coming from the closet and it was a last sound that they heard from Sheila. Three days later, three days later. So they heard a noise and then waited three days later. They opened the door. They discovered Sheila's decomposing body curled up in a fetal position. Oh my God. So apparently she had tried to climb some of the small shelves in the closet, but they weren't strong enough to hold her weight and she came crashing down and that was a thump that they heard. Teresa grabbed an old cardboard box and filled it with blankets and pillows. She ordered her two sons, so she again called William back to the house who who wasn't living there and and in the evil lives here she blamed the whole thing on on her kids. They were she also like, brainwashed and manipulated yes. and they thought that if they told on their mother that they would also be killed. They, 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 they thought that they would be killed, but they thought if they went to the police, that the police would think that they were involved in the murders and that they would be going to prison. Yeah. I mean, they watched their mom kill two of their siblings. So they thought that they would either be killed by their mother or be blamed for the murders right. if they told. Right. And, uh, Teresa grabbed an old cardboard box and filled it with blankets and pillows. She ordered her two sons to place Sheila's remains inside and carry it out to the car. Everyone did as they were told, and eventually they were driving up Interstate 80 toward the Truckee Airport. 
Along the way, Teresa spotted a small field and decided to pull off the road. She ordered the boys to unload her sister's cardboard casket and toss it in the weeds. A few hours after the box was dropped off, Elmer Barber was making his usual rounds at the Mattis Creek campground and stumbled upon the homemade casket. His curiosity got the best of him, and he lifted the flaps of the box open. Oh, no. When he saw in, what he saw inside would prove to haunt him for the rest of his life. Elmer quickly notified the Nevada County Sheriff's Department, and within hours, the area was swarming with investigators. Nonetheless, they were unable to make a positive identification, and there were very few clues to work with. The victim was dubbed Jane Doe, number 6607-85, and her cause of death was listed as undetermined. Teresa was extremely paranoid after Sheila's death and became concerned that the closet contained evidence which might someday implicate her in her daughter's death. So, on September 29th, 1986, Teresa packed up all the family's belongings and ordered Terry to set the house on fire. Using charcoal lighter fluid, Terry doused the floors and struck a match before climbing out the side window. Regardless of Teresa's intent, Neighbors immediately noticed the fire and the local fire department was dispatched to the scene. There was little damage done to the home and the investigators had no doubt that the blaze had been started deliberately, but it, nothing came out of it. Nothing came from that fire. And as far as the neighbors noticing anything, um, their, um, the neighbors said that they kept themselves and they were never allowed to go outside. And they didn't see, they didn't go to school, they didn't go to the doctor, they didn't go to the dentist. So nobody in their life was able to even realize they were missing. So nobody, they didn't know anybody outside of their family. So nobody, no friends, no extended family, no neighbors noticed that they were missing. I think that both of these cases are a big lesson in if you see something, say something. Yes. If you see a kid that if something doesn't feel right or seem right, it's not going to hurt anything to call somebody who can do a wellness check on a family. Right. Because if those parents aren't doing anything wrong, that's fine. They might get a little annoyed. They're not going to know who sent. Oh, they get more than annoyed. They get pissed. Yeah, but they're not going to know who sent them. It's not like they're going to say, oh. Oh, they. Do uh, they? Do they say? Yeah, they're not supposed to. They're not supposed I to. I used to be a mandated reporter. Um, there's a lot of jobs that are required mandated reporters and I would report things because it was my philosophy that I'd rather be wrong. Yes. That's what I'm saying. And rather have the parents be upset than have you be, have me be complacent into child for, for child abuse, with child abuse. Not say something and then something like this happens. Yeah. I totally agree with that. They, a lot of the times it's mistakenly slipped. They wouldn't say a name, but they would say where it came Enough. from. The parents would be. Yes. Well, fuck it. Who cares if people are mad at you? And if that, you see something, say something. And I've had to report multiple cases, and I just had to say, like, you know what? I would rather take a rage-filled parent come at me than not say anything. Totally. That was more important to me. So, yeah, if, if something doesn't feel right, please report it. It might save a life, truly. Teresa's children were all grown up by the time she went into hiding. Howard, 26, wanted nothing to do with her. Um, 
William, 24-year-old William, moved out. He wanted nothing to do with her. He moved in with a girlfriend. Terry, Teresa's namesake, also left her mother. She was only 16, the baby. So she was like, I'm 16. I have no life skills, but I am out of here. And she actually used Sheila's identification, and she was able to pass herself off as 21. Teresa's only remaining child, 19-year-old Robert Wallace Knorr, was that's the only one that remained with her is Robert. Yeah, and I he read was that too. That's second to the youngest. Weird. Yeah. He eventually, the two of them eventually moved to Vegas together. I mean, it says things were going well in the beginning, but like they were never really going well. On November 1991, in November 1991, Robert, desperate for money, walked into Red's Place, a bar in North Nell- on North Nellis Boulevard in Vegas, pulled out a gun, and robbed the place. Um, the details remain sketchy, but in the end, the bartender um, was left dead at the foot of the bar. So, I, Jesus. I don't know what happened. Um, I don't know. Investigators arrested Robert for the murder, and he was later sentenced to 16 years in jail. 16 for murder. Okay. Um, Teresa was nervous about all the attention, and a few weeks later, she fucking ditched Robert and moved to Salt Lake City. In 1992, Terry, who had since married, so Terry's her youngest daughter, Mm -hmm. was watching an episode of America's Most Wanted. While none of the cases related to her family, they inspired her to do the right thing, and she contacted Nevada authorities. Police Sergeant Ron Para, the Nevada County, California Sheriff's Office, received the call. Terry told him that years earlier, her mother and her two brothers had killed her sister by dousing her with gasoline and setting her afire. Oh my God. The next year, she told them they killed her other sister and dumped her body in the mountains. Para was intrigued by the young woman's unbelievable tale and decided to interview her in person. Okay, so this was the second time that Terry had reached out to law enforcement. The first time she did, nobody believed her. Yeah. Um, the following day, Peria, I think it's Peria, met with Terry and interviewed her for several hours. He took notes and um, he took his notes to the district attorney's office and a task force was assembled to check out the story. Investigators soon discovered that the Jane Doe reports and all the details Terry had given them had, had fallen into place. On November 4th, 1993, investigators filed felony charges against Teresa and her two sons. William was found in a Sacramento suburb where he worked at a warehouse and lived in a peaceful neighborhood. Investigators soon learned of Robert's previous arrest and found him in Nevada County Jail. Neither of the boys were interested in talking to investigators, but both eventually relented and confessed to their involvement in both their sister's death. Five days later, California investigators received a call from Salt Lake City authorities telling them that Teresa had been tracked down by a driver's license application and she had just been arrested five days earlier for drunk driving. Sergeant John Fitzgerald of the Placer County Sheriff's Office flew to Salt Lake City and headed for the address listed on Teresa's license application. Just before nightfall, he knocked on the door, and surprisingly, Teresa answered without hesitation and then was arrested. Investigators had acted not a moment too soon, Teresa was aware of the investigation and was in the process of packing her belongings. Oh, shit. Back at the police station, she refused to cooperate and requested a lawyer. 
Teresa was charged in the torture slayings of her two daughters and arraigned in a Salt Lake City courtroom on November 15, 1993. According to the articles in the Sacramento Bee, she was extradited to Placer County the following month, arraigned before Superior Court Judge J. Richard Cousins and charged... really hoping it was going to be the same. The same fucking judge, I know, right? And charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstances, multiple murder and murder by torture charges, which could result in a death sentence. Teresa pleaded not guilty, fucking crazy bitch, I swear, and was remanded to the Sacramento County Jail. The same day, Judge Cousins ordered William Robert Knorr prosecuted as an adult. Robert eventually struck a deal with prosecutors and agreed to testify against Teresa in exchange for a lighter sentence. One month later, all charges against him except a single count of conspiracy regarding Sheila's death were dropped. When Teresa learned of the deal Robert made with the district attorney's office, she decided she did not want to take her chances with the death sentence, and she offered to plead guilty in exchange for her life. District Attorney John O'Mara agreed on October on October 17, 1995, Teresa Char changed her plea to guilty. During sentencing, Judge William R. Ridgway characterized Teresa's crimes as callousness beyond belief. I mean, that's a fucking understatement. And sentenced her to two consecutive life sentences. Teresa will be eligible for parole in 2027. If she lives to see it, she'll be what? 80 years old. Yeah, she's eligible for parole. Isn't How that crazy? Fuck? Crazy. Robert, who was still serving out his murder charge in Nevada, was eventually sentenced to three years in state prison. The court ordered the sentence run concurrently with his 1991 murder sentence. William was placed on probation for his role in the murders and ordered to undergo therapy. The kids were really not at fault for those crimes. No, they weren't. Um, so that fucking crazy bitch better never get out of fucking jail prison. I hope so. I hope she doesn't. You know, poor, those poor kids, poor Susan and poor Sheila. It's just really sad. And that is a story of a murder. That's a case of Sheila and Susan Knorr. The murders of Sheila, Susan Knorr at the hands of her mother. You did a great job. So sad. I mean, I didn't write that. I just, I just read that essay, but. I know, but that's really awful. Um, so now get this. I have a connection to this case, a personal connection to this case. Are you ready to have goosebumps all over your entire body? Yes. Do okay. it. Do it to me. All right. So, in now this was in like northern. This took place in northern California, the Sacramento area. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, in 1994, my biological mother was out dancing. Oh my god! On Sunrise Boulevard. And guess who she met? Fucking guess. Who? William fucking Knorr. The guy that was in The Evil Lives Here? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. So my aunt and my mom were out dancing. Holy and shit. William was there with his best friend. And this is 1994. So it's like right after. Oh, he was going through the tra- trial. Oh shit. At the time. Oh my God. All right. So my mom goes out with her sister, my aunt. My aunt sees this guy, they have immediate sparks. His best friend is William Knorr. They're there together. So my aunt starts dating his best friend. My mom starts dating William Knorr. Oh my God. For a few months during the trial. God, for a few months? For a few months. I thought it was just one date. No, they dated for a few months. 
Okay, uh, so how could he even date somebody when he's going to trial? Wasn't he stressed out? I don't think he was on trial. I think he his was just mother was on he trial. He was just he was already sentenced to probation and therapy. I mean, that's fair that he would be sentenced to therapy. Fuck knows they all needed it after oh life with that god, bitch. Yeah. So, oh my god, I can't. That is so crazy. Yeah, he seemed on the episode. He seemed like such a normal. Oh, good. dude, that I, I commented to other people, like, how could this guy just seem like a normal, sweet guy okay, after listen. that witch of a mom? So I asked my mom, I said, mom, what, what was he like? And she was like, surprisingly normal. She said he was funny and he was nice. And he was, by all accounts, to- seemed totally normal, except for one thing. She said that he was detached very detached he felt very detached from any kind of connection well that's probably like a coping mechanism that he's learned right that would make sense yeah i'm sure see that's just another uh, he's lucky to walk away with just detachment from emotions no shit that's like what we were talking about before like the nature versus nurture thing it's like he went through all of this and grew up and was a great guy and guess what? What? Okay, so William Nor Will, she said they called him Will. Okay. Nor was the last guy that she dated before she met my stepdad. Oh my god. And she said the only reason she stopped talking to Will Nor was because my stepdad, who she eventually married, was like, We're boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, like yeah. this is a thing. So she said even if your, if like your stepdad when, hadn't swooped in. William and then the charmer. Been my stepdad. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> That's the sound of my mind blowing. Those are actually our uh, very high tech sound effects. That was. <laughs> well, you know what? Good for him for overcoming all of that, and then, you know, living a good life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they're still friends to this day. I say props to these kids that are the survivors. That's who the story is really about. I mean, friends on social media. I don't like hang out or anything. That's still friends. But I mean, can you believe it? No, I can't. That's pretty amazing. Can you believe it? No, that's pretty amazing. And I'm happy that you ended yours on a higher note. Yeah. Because these so, are some downers, man. By all accounts, it seems like Terry has, you know, moved on and mm-hmm. is living her life. Robert obviously is in prison. Um, he might be out by now. I'm not sure because he had 16 years and was serving his time um, consecutively because he was a lot more involved in the day-to-day with Teresa than William was. William had like left the house yeah. as soon as he could get out. And he obviously, Robert never left her. Yeah. Yeah. So that is our first top shelf episode. And that brings us to the end. Yeah. Of our first top shelf episode. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> sorry if you're feeling depressed. Oh my gosh, should we let's let's raise Or you maybe you're not feeling depressed. Maybe you're feeling like you've just learned two more new t- true crime cases. Maybe. We hope we taught you something. I-, I think what we taught you is don't fucking trust anybody. <laughs> you cannot trust anybody. Oh, not yeah. even the people that give you life can you trust. We don't have a lot of great lessons on today's episode. That's for I sure. I think we do actually. I think we do. If go with your gut. If something doesn't feel right, go with your gut and report it. If you see something, say something. Do you want to do our little raise the bar? 
Can yeah. I have a bar this week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a bar that was recommended by a friend. It's called DeVere's Irish Pub. Irish Pub. It's in Sacramento. And it looks like they have a lot of really cool um, punches that you can get in the morning for oh, brunch. Shit. Yeah, they look cool. And they also do a bottomless bottle service mimosas for $13 on their Sunday brunch. I'm telling you what right now. So I'm going to check it out. That's my jam. Bottomless mimosas. Hell yeah. It looks like a great place. So check it out. That's our bar this week. De Beers. And that's in, in downtown Sacramento. Yes. Wow. I'm going to go watch Disney Plus now. Oh, yeah. Let's watch Disney movies forever because I'm never going to be able to sleep again after this. Episode. I'm going to go binge on Disney Plus <laughs> turn this turn this day around. That's, that's seriously what we need. I know I'm going to watch 48 hours of DuckTales. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Do you want to say your our slogan? Well, our mantra, yeah. Because don't forget to... What is it? Hydrate? Meditate and last but certainly not least, masturbate. Cheers to that. Cheers to that.